Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Beverly Oakley is an Australian author who grew up in the African mountain kingdom of Lesotho, emigrated to South Australia when she was young, and married a Norwegian bush pilot she met while managing a safari lodge in Botswana's Okavango Delta. Her romance writing career began as a way to amuse herself in the 12 countries she's lived as the trailing spouse of a pilot husband and when she worked as an airborne geophysical survey operator in the back of low-flying Cessna 404s and CASA 212s, often the only female crew member in remote locations around the world. Beverly writes historical romance as Beverly Oakley. Her first release under her new pen name, B.G. Nettleton, is an Africaset romantic suspense set in the rugged mountains of Lesotho in the early 1960s, featuring, you guessed it, a ruggedly handsome bush pilot. Emma Gray is a novelist, feature writer, photographer, professional speaker, and accountability coach. She's been writing fiction since she first fell for Anne of Green Gables at 14, and is the author of the YA novels Unrequited and Tilly Maguire in the Royal Wedding Mess, as well as I Don't Have Time, co-authored with Audrey Thomas, and the parenting memoir, Wits End Before Breakfast, Confessions of a Working Mum. She wrote her first adult novel, The Last Love Note, in the wake of her husband's death. It's a fictional tribute to their love, an attempt to articulate the magnitude of her loss, and a life-affirming commitment to hope. Emma lives just outside Canberra, where her world centers on her two adult daughters, young son, loved stepchildren and step-grandchildren, writing, photography, and endlessly chasing the Aurora Australis. Rachel S. Morgan is an award-winning fiction writer, screenwriter, and emerging television showrunner. A former entertainment journalist and recipient of the Josephine Ulrich Literature Prize, her previous film and television credits include Wanted, Mako Mermaids, and The Bachelor. Rachel writes a lot of things, but has a particular penchant for drama that makes you laugh, comedy that stabs you in the feels, stuff that is high camp and scary AF, and historical fiction. If there's magic, pop stars, or vampires in the mix, all the better. She's soon to release the first book in a brand new rom-com mystery series through Daring Press and is currently developing a diverse film and television slate that includes her new dark comedy TV show, Disgraceful. Disgraceful is also her current novel work in progress because she doesn't think she has enough things on her plate. Rachel likes yoga, tattoos, and cheese, but not in that order. Mostly, the cheese comes first. I am super excited today to talk about something that I have not heard on other writing podcasts. And I will raise my hand and say I don't listen to all the other <laughs> writing podcasts. So apologies if it's been out there, but I don't think we can share too much. I've worked with so many writers over the years. I'm very used to what feels like the ebb and flow of the creative process, the writerly process. But just recently, it feels like there are more and more, especially women, and we're all women on today's podcast, talking about 
neuro differences. And I'm using that as an umbrella term because I don't think it matters specifically what those differences are. But I would love to have a conversation with these three beautiful writers about how they show up for their writing, what it actually looks like. And then maybe some of them can share a little bit about their process, either assisting somebody going through a potential diagnosis and what it makes them recognize in themselves and all those sorts of things that we bring to our writing. I will just probably reiterate this at the end. There is nothing that should preclude you or exclude you from writing. Nothing. And so we'll get into some things too that have nothing to do, maybe, I mean, they might be similar or attached, but they don't necessarily mean that you have a neuro difference or you're neuro atypical, but that a lot of us struggle with, maybe because of our schooling, maybe because we were distracted. Maybe we weren't great readers at the beginning, but I might just dive in first because you came to the table with this as a topic, Bev, I'd love for you to just share maybe a little bit about what made you think about why sharing this thing about being neuroatypical or having neuro differences, what that says, and I don't know how it affects your writing. Okay. Oh, thank you, Anjanette. I think that um, my process is a very burst and exhaustion and burst sort of scenario, which reflects with how I was not the greatest student at school handing in my essays or starting my essays the day that they were due. <laughs> and it was only through the realisation that to be published, you actually had to write that first draft, which would have been that essay, and then leave it to rest and, and then go back and edit it. A lot of issues that I with and that made me not the greatest student, when reflected in my writing, I've realised as an adult I've had to find workarounds mm -hmm. and traditional publishing was, was quite challenging because a deadline was a deadline. Now I make my own deadlines and, um, you know, the punishable by death, the, <laughs> the Amazon will lock you out for forever or a year rather, if you don't deliver a pre-order. So things like that. Ooh, so, I don't know about that. So can oh, you explain yeah. that if you're yeah. self-publishing? Yeah. You set a pre-order and then you have to meet it? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. I think, I think now you get the chance to move that date once now, but if you actually don't deliver after that one chance they give you, then you lose your pre-orders and you can't set up a pre-order for a, a year. So that sounds draconian, but <laughs> that's how that works. So, so I suppose just to answer your question as a, I'm not diagnosed. My daughter, two, I have two daughters who and are recently diagnosed with ADHD and answering all the questions or seeing them answer those questions made me realise that it had to come from somewhere. And we know now it's um, friends and families. And it made me completely look at the way I tackle tasks like mm -hmm. writing from my student days and how I manage it now wow. and how yeah. I put out a few books a year and keep a writing career going, knowing that, you know, my strength isn't in certain things that other would be the strengths of other writers to do the consistency and delivery. For me, yeah, like sit down every single day mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. write like that. I think that's why we like to be flexible. It's interesting that you got the opportunity 
to recognize both the similarities, like the things that you were experiencing with your daughters as they were going or your daughters as they went through the diagnosis process. And then also got to see, ah, now I understand why I've built these, I'll call them coping mechanisms. That sounds more emotional than it does practical, but it's true. We create structures. So structure isn't just something for story. (laughs) It is also for how we get things finished that we feel passionately about. And more than one book a year, that's a lot. I mean, that's doing really well. So clearly you've set up some pretty good structures. A little bit with Amazon's help, apparently. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to be locked out. Well, you mentioned something, and I know from talking before to Emma, you, we've talked even before on the podcast about embracing this binge writing. So maybe, Em, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And Mm. I mean, it's a recognition for me just now, today, (laughs) talking to you both and going, oh, that's why. (laughs) That's why that works. That's right. And I think it's this, I mean, in the past, I've thought what's wrong with me that that I can only sort of, I can do nothing for so long and then I can binge write an entire book in a short space of time when we know that, we're supposedly meant to be sitting down doing this writing practice every day and all of that. That's sort of where where we've come from in our understanding. And I think it's great that we're having these conversations and realizing that actually if you get books done, does it really matter whether you did it in a, you know on a daily basis or in, in five weeks of barely any sleep? Might matter for your health. Yeah, I was but... gonna say, hey, you know me. I say sleep, I say <laughs> yeah. sleep, but yes. I appreciate that. You get sleep yeah. on the other yeah. days. That's right. But I have noticed this in talking with my daughter who's 24 and she's doing a PhD and she has very similar patterns to me in in terms of her productivity. And we were saying the other day that when you are on and you're having one of these intense bursts of activity, the reality is that we're getting more done in those short intense bursts than it would be possible for a lot of people to get done in a sort of more balanced way across the course of a week, for example. And what happens is that we have this burst where we feel almost like we're almost superhuman and can get all this done, make all these plans. It's all very exciting. And we can be incredibly productive. But then when we sort of crash into this flat period afterwards, which of course is totally understandable because we can't keep that up, it's then this language that we use. We then sort of, my daughter and I were noticing we sort of berate ourselves with what are you doing? Why aren't you doing more? Get up, get going, you know, and it's this real, when you think about it, it's kind of like going to the gym and training really hard and then having a rest day. I mean, that's perfectly acceptable in exercise world. And it should be the same, I think, for us, that if we have one of these periods of intense activity, then rather than say, I'm so unproductive, I'm procrastinating, I'm really flat, and that kind of language, which only sort of damages us further, if we can recognize now I'm going to rest and build my energy again, I think we can probably get ourselves out of that dip faster and more kindly. Yeah. I was going to say, it sort of goes to the point that I often make about, you're right, the the negative is often saying, oh, I'm procrastinating and being judgmental and self-critical rather than thinking I'm pausing. And what I like to do, and it sounds a little bit more woo and airy-fairy, but is you're waiting for something. It could be a piece of the puzzle to appear or you hear a snippet of conversation, but whatever you call it, it is 
pausing for a purpose. I made a meme like a million years ago that said that. It's about pausing for a purpose and recognizing. I think the biggest challenge would simply be only changing those things that feel bad to you in the moment. So even at the height of this binge writing and this high energy, if it isn't working and you're letting everything else go, which sounds more like hypermania, what you're talking about, and maybe with books, and I can say this only because I've walked next to you as you've been during a binge, it's hyper-focus, which we're used to hearing about if we know people with neurodiversity, especially if they're on the spectrum and or have ADHD, or I don't know if they use ADD anymore, but it is not that there is no capacity to focus. It is that it's not regulated and Mm. sort of this very structured thing where we know every day we've all seen kids. I mean, I had two boys that were like this and I don't know if they're anywhere on the spectrum, but I would say the sitting down straight away and just being good and listening. I did not take them to story time at the library. I tried. Okay. And I was not going to keep doing it, hurting myself emotionally with trying to get them to sit down. It just wasn't for them. But guess what? The one who's just finished his HSC, he reads, he's writing, he shared creative writing with me. So finding your way and only changing those things that feel like I don't even like it when I'm doing the positive part. But like you said, the self-talk that we have when we're in a pause, so important because then you maybe won't resist it or take so long to get back to the part where you're back to story. Yeah. What about Mm. you, Rach? How did you come to a point? We've talked before about your million ideas and writing physically, which I still love. And it's actually changed the way that I read some of your writing, which I think is funny. But what got you to a place where you thought, hang on, maybe I'll go look at potential diagnosis? Yeah. I mean, there's so much that resonated with me with what you were just talking about, Bev, and and, and, and you. And there's so many things flying around at the moment that a lot of people are talking about that are so recognizable. But I'm actually, so for context, I'm not formally diagnosed with ADD, but I am fairly certain that that is me. <laughs> and I have an appointment with a psychiatrist coming up soon to actually look into that and and also ASD as well. There's just a lot of things that have been popping up that I'm recognizing and realizing and that I feel like explain my entire life, I guess. And and there's so much commentary at the moment. I mean, M. Bruciano recently was diagnosed with ADD and everything she's been posting, I, I just, it was like she could have been talking about me, my daughter has been recognizing potentially some things with my granddaughter and has been asking some questions of me. So there's all of those connections and I think it's, mm. it's worth looking into. It's funny, I'm amazed that it's taken me this long to think about myself in this way because my younger sister back in the late 80s, 90s was um, diagnosed with ADHD. So this was back when it was all about being hyperactive and don't drink red cordial and don't have too much sugar and all the colorings and all all of those things. And my sister is very different to me. She did have some issues at school with behavior. And so this was, you know, back when it was women weren't being diagnosed. So young girls weren't generally diagnosed. It was all about naughty little boys, you know, this is 30 years ago. And it didn't even occur to me at any stage that it runs in families. 
because I was a very quiet kid and I didn't think I had any trouble staying still. I would literally sit for hours and hours and hours and hours just reading a book. But now when I look back on that, that was that hyper-focus When something really interests me or fascinates me, I can literally sit there for days and not even notice what is going on around me. And so it didn't occur to me that that was what it possibly is. I thought that was, everyone used to say, oh, you're so quiet, so well behaved and so good and so polite. So it was that complete opposite way of of behaving or, or interacting. And I mean, I do have a million projects on the go at any one time. I don't always finish some of us have lots of ideas and not all of them need to be manifested, but I think yeah. it's really interesting listening to you. And of course, like I said, it's part of the zeitgeist now where mm. so many more people are talking and, and because the way that girls and women express, we never recognized ourselves. And I really think it goes yeah. down to, we had it we were browbeaten with this. If you're good and you're quiet, then you can yeah. recognize those similarities. Yeah. You couldn't possibly be because you were not the same. And yeah. yet the way that we interact is mm. as long as we're not getting in trouble, then we're pretty good. And yet... And I was such a high achiever as well. And I recognized something Bev said. I, all the way through school and high school and even in work now, I leave everything to the last minute, everything to the last minute. And with my assignments in school, I would literally do them the night before and I would always get an A or an A plus. So in my brain, I just thought, I'm super smart. I'm super accomplished. Why would I bother doing anything ahead of time? Because I can just do it the night before and I'll get great marks. It's only now looking back, I can see what I was doing. And I I am a terrible procrastinator and it's the language we use. Oh, you're procrastinating, et cetera, et cetera. I physically cannot make myself do things unless I have a deadline. It's interesting. Someone I follow on Instagram was talking about this paralysis, like productivity paralysis, that you literally physically cannot make yourself do it. You can browbeat yourself and you can say, you need to do this now. And I can stare at the page and I literally cannot will my... It's very, very strange. I totally Um, identify with that though. And also the other... So I come even from a different perspective from most of you in that a lot of the time that I spend is either with doing editing or with prepping stuff to sub if I'm acting as an agent for somebody. And I feel so just like I'm not ticking any boxes and I'm just Mm. floating along. But when I hit that spot, like when you were talking about that with you and Hannah, I can get a lot done like so many, so many things all at once, but it's this sort of feeling like the energy has to be in me. It's Mm. not that the activity is hard. It has nothing to do with that. And yes, I would say I spend a lot of time just beating myself up. So like, if I could just accept it, it is what it is, then at least the, the downtime would maybe be slightly more enjoyable. And then Mm. I would feel rested. Like you were talking about, um, if you go to the gym, if you enjoy your rest day, it's a lot better than just berating yourself for having one until you get back to it. I think it's because we, the patterns of work that have traditionally been in Mm -hmm. place, what we think is sort of normal in terms of output, and it actually doesn't suit so many people. So I think creativity itself 
as varied as, you know, from one person to the next, you know, it's just incredible the amount of difference between all creatives and everyone who, and everyone is creative, I believe. But that doesn't sort of fit into that nine to five, sit down at your desk, get it done mentality. And I think the more we can look at those patterns of work and say, well, how about if you were as flexible as you needed to be over the course of the same period of five days and could work whenever you wanted and and adapt to your environment and work in a cafe? You know, it's not just where, you know, the time you work, but where you work, who you're with, who you're not with, all of that stuff. I wonder whether productivity would just go up everywhere if people were, you know, more free to be able to work according to their the way their mind works. That structure you're talking about. So oftentimes, especially in writer's flow or even in the challenge, that's part of why the the prompt that I give, which is when you experienced flow, just a time, what was it like? Remember a time where you felt really good about it? What time of day? What was around you? And knowing that there may be multiple options that you felt in flow, but getting to remind yourself of a good time so that potentially you can, like you said, think, okay, well, if I am going over these five days, what feels good? Sometimes, and for some of us, makes it sound like maybe we we have a defect, but I don't think it is. It feels good to just let it float around in your head until the very last minute, and then you get it all out. I listened to Mm -hmm. an interview, and I cannot remember the lady's name. It's Maria. L.A. Weather is the book she wrote, and she said something those of you who've heard from me for a while know I don't believe in writer's block because I just don't like that concept. I think it's something else is going on. Uh, So you can have a million tips and tricks, but they're not going to fix it. She also didn't, she wanted us to look at the way we think of writer's block in so much as a lot of the writing, as we say, doesn't take place on the page. So if you are Mm -hmm. feeling blocked when you sit down, get up, (laughs) don't be sitting down go do the other things because it's still marinating or changing or shifting. When you get back to the page, that's when it will all come out. I see that in you, especially Rage. I mean, I haven't gotten to watch your process, Bev, but I sense that in the way that you've described it as well. And you've even got that extra thing. You didn't create it, but you're buying in with the Amazon part, but you still are in control of it, right? Because you give them the deadline that you want to be set to, and then you match it. So regardless of whether we were diagnosed before or not yet or never, understanding how we took what was prescribed to us by the world when we were younger around our writing or creativity or whatever, and then what are the things that we have done as we've gotten older and felt more empowered to create a structure to try to get a better result. With writing, most of the time, at least in this context, we're talking about something we want to do. So we feel a little bit more empowered to do it that way. But you're before you set that deadline, Bev, I'm guessing you're saying, you know, here are the things I'm going to be doing. Here's what I've got. Here's the idea that sort of wants to come out, I think. So you're planning it. You're structuring it to try mm-hmm. to get the best out of you. Yeah. So the deadline sounds very harsh, but also, you know, hey, I don't do it as well when I have no deadline. So that's not good. I'm sure there are some people out there who can do it. I don't know that I've met them. Anybody here do really well if you never have a deadline? Yeah, no. You can't do anything without a a deadline. And I think sometimes what we 
consider defects are actually strengths. And I only came to that, um, well, for me, actually, it's a realisation because it has to be realisation to enable me to feel this is a good thing, not a bad thing. What I'm talking about is that this leaving it till the last minute where so often I might be in an anthology and I can't let everyone down. The deadline is the deadline. It's the Amazon deadline. And I think, so if it's the Amazon deadline, well, I've got the control. Why did I again leave it until the last minute where I've got five days to actually finish this book and I don't know who the bad guy was or I don't know how to finish it or whatever it might be. And then I'll do that all night writing and I'll get the story done. And I think, my goodness, that was a fabulous twist ending. And I went to a Strengths for Writers all-day workshop with the RWA. Becca Syme, she does a Better Faster Academy, I think. Anyway, she was out from the US and we had to, well, we did our top five strengths and she interpreted them for us and mine was strategic and that was interpreted as you are good at seeing a solution that a lot of other people can't see out of difficulties. And when translated to my writing, it's like, yes, you want to keep everyone guessing, including yourself. You have no idea how the ending is going Mm. to be. But it's only pressure that for me, it seems to be like the pressure cooker experience is the necessary piece of what's required to get that inspiration and get that ending going. So before I always considered it a bad thing that I could not get going Mm -hmm. before the pressure cooker phase kicked in. But in fact, maybe it's actually a good thing. That's Mm. the key. Isn't it funny? And I heard an interview and I can see how this happens in the book and it's meta. So I keep forgetting which one was the author saying this and which was the character in the book saying this. I don't know. Same, same, right? Probably a little, at least a little bit, but she did say that I think maybe this was, was the character, but it's similar to what the author said as well, that she also writes thrillers. And even if you're writing a romance, there can be a twist, right? But that she might write the whole thing and then go, oh, that's not who did it. And then put the person in who did it or thinking it's going to be this and then be surprised when a character's still alive and then only finding out (laughs) by writing it because the character tells her, look, all of that is stuff that I think is any creative who's experienced the pleasure of that revelation. Why would you want to fix that? And I used air quotes there. Why would you want to get rid of that? If you can write a whole story, whether you do it in 24 hours or in 24 weeks, you got it done if you're enjoying it. So again, when you were talking about that, that pressure cooker, I thought, again, it's finding the thing that even if we call it quote unquote painful, we still kind of enjoy it like a workout. Some workouts are painful and we hate them and we will leave them and they can whatever. And others are painful in a good way right? They're stretching us. So again, this concept of noticing, observing how we're naturally reacting, and then trying to build things in our environment that help support it, which is why I think so many women have gone undiagnosed because we are inherently doing that. We're constantly getting feedback. And as writers, you're keen observers, whether you're conscious of it or not. 
and you're getting this feedback from others. So you're finding a way to move through the world where you're not getting in trouble as much, right? Like not like those naughty boys and yet trying to succeed in the way you want. All I could wish for writers, whether they think of themselves as neurotypical or not, I don't think it matters. It it matters if you feel like maybe I just want the recognition. So I go, oh, that's why. Because maybe it will help you release some of that judgment you were talking about, Emma. Some people do better because maybe they actually want medication. They're not even finishing the things that they actually do feel very passionately about. So like what you were saying, Bev, they build a pressure cooker, but it's still not quite working, right? A seal is broken or something. Other than that, have you learned anything that that made you feel, and this will segue into what I, another thing I wanted to chat with you about, Em, but that you felt like you're not allowed or is has this recognition of maybe you're somewhere different on whatever spectrum that we think of uh, the way your brain works. Are you in a place where you can recognize that like you did, Bev, like as a strength? I'm glad to see that I do it like this or has it been, I really wish I could just change it all? Do you spend time thinking, I wish I could just show up nine to five and do my words if you had a choice? For me or Emma? For anyone. Do any of you wish, if you could wave a magic wand, and by the way, I know this is very nuanced and it includes relationships with others and all sorts of things, but when it comes to your writing, if you could wave a magic wand and just be the kind of person that, again, we're still not saying it's a final draft sort of quality coming out, everybody writes the first draft that needs revising. But if you could just sit down every day and write very consistently toward a project just like day after day, nine to five, five days a week. That's how you do your writing. Would you want to switch to it? No. I, I mean, I I mean, do I wish I could just make a living just writing and not have to do anything <laughs> else? Yes. <laughs> yes, I would yeah, like to do that. that. Part. But I think if I didn't, I mean, currently I'm juggling a day job, I'm juggling numerous things, but even if I didn't have those things and writing was all I had to do, I still don't think I would do it nine to five well, I would still probably leave things to the last minute and I would still write late at night or wake up at three o'clock in the morning and suddenly have to get things down on the page. I I would probably go to the gym a lot and <laughs> nap. And, do the other things, know, right? I would, still, I would do the other things. I honestly don't think... I mean, I, I probably would write more than I am at the moment, but I don't think it would be consistent nine to five sitting down and doing that in relation to what you were saying before about recognizing strengths or I, I'd like to think that the way I work is I'm trying to think of it as my superpower mm-hmm. rather than a defect. And I, I think I've realized over the last few years that I've managed to to get myself into the situation where what I'm writing or what I'm working on all the time, I mean, I'm a screenwriter as well. I, I'm a plotter, not a pantser. And I have figured out that leaning into all of those structures, especially very specific story structures or how story works, actually calms my brain down and enables me to work. So I used to feel like it was that as a creative person or an artist, I should be able to be much more freewheeling and, and you know, just lean into the you know, creative chaos. I just don't work like that. I need the structure and I need, it might sound rigid. There's still plenty of room for surprises, but I need all of that in order to be able to function and get stuff done. So I think your structure looks a little different to some people. So when I think of a plotter, I think of fairly bare, bare bones, 
where, you know, we've got a sentence or a couple of sentences and we're writing it out like that and maybe some little notes. And when I have asked you to come up with just a basic synopsis, Uh, it's like the whole story, but a shorter version, like it will need filling in. So I think it's happening in here. Mm. Again, I think a lot of it is happening in there and you're simply pulling it out. But I guess I feel heartened to hear that, although Emmy didn't, I think maybe you nodded or shook your head, that you're you're no longer fighting the way that you are, rather leaning into it. Yeah. And yes, again, I think so. And I think it's been watching my daughter exhibit the same behaviors that has really made me think, hang on a second. You know how it's easy to look at your children and say, oh, you poor thing. We need to think about this and, and work this out. But we've let the same thing go for the last four decades or five decades or whatever it is. <laughs> I think just the more that this is spoken about, the easier it becomes for us to put a different lens on it and realize that actually this is, these are strengths. And there are also ways that we can be kinder to ourselves for the bits of it that don't work as well. Or that are more of a challenge. I was going to say, mm. it sounds like the question that goes on loop, but is not expressed is I'm allowed to write or I'm not allowed to write. Like who is allowed and who's not allowed, which leads me to that thing we wanted to talk about. And there's different sections I know that we're going to look at. A lot of people, especially if they know that they have dyslexia or don't know and or are horrible spellers, the number of people who think I can't be a writer because I have horrible spelling. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to write. Or I got really bad grades in English. Or I had a teacher tell me I'm a horrible writer or multiple, whatever. By the way, some of the most successful authors I know got really bad marks in English and were told they didn't have the chops to write. So we know that's not true. But Em, I know that you'd wanted to talk about this too, especially the spelling thing, but also your unique view of the spelling thing as to, and maybe it's because we're on social media and look, I'm guilty. I'm an editor and, and I do proofread and I notice mistakes, but even I have learned, you know what, just because something bothers me doesn't mean it needs correcting because this is a meme or a comment. People assume that because we're writers that we're obviously excellent at at spelling. Perfect. All Um, the time. Is this assumption. And So people constantly tag you in things about grammar and spelling. And I've started to push back on that because I just so disagree with it. And I've been really open about the fact that I don't, I'm not a natural speller. And sometimes my spelling is so off that that spell check cannot pick up what I'm trying to say. And it won't suggest any other options to the point where I've got to change the word entirely. And I can't even look it up in a dictionary. I cannot find it. And it'll just be a word that we all know. Like, you know, it's that difficult sometimes. Well, maybe and, can you talk about why that, I, because I think that in well, particular is related to this other thing. I think, yeah. So you might've heard of this condition called synesthesia, which is the cross wiring of senses in the mind. And the most common form of it is that letters and syllables and numbers are associated with a certain color in your mind. That's a grapheme color version of synesthesia other people have things like they taste shapes Mm. or they taste names or some people have a version of it where everything is positioned in their 
mind's eye in a certain place in space out in front of them. Right. Anyway, so, yeah. so the type, oh. it's really cool, but the, the type that I have and that I love having is this grapheme colour synesthesia. So everybody, every word that I read is associated in my mind's eye with colours. And the problem is when you identify, when you incorrectly spell something very early on in life, <laughs> It's a certain colour in your mind and changing that colour is almost is impossible. So now when I'm searching for the alternative spelling, it just doesn't occur to me. The, you know, it, it's usually things like a, it's a vowel problem. So it, it, it'll be, um, I'm trying to think of, I don't even know, I can't even pluck words out of my mind that it could be, but <laughs> it's just the bonus of it though, there's this upside as well, is that sometimes when I'm reading a sentence that I've written, I'll be sort of envisaging the colours that these words create. And if there are too many words in a sentence of a similar colour, I will swap it out for more colourful language. And, um, <laughs> and So you're essentially writing the rainbow. I, I love I mean, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And it's the sound of the syllables that are connected with the colour. Mm. So then it sounds more musical as well. And it's interesting because I've co-written a musical with my friend Sally Whitwell, who's a composer, and she said that what I've written is always musical to start off with and that because she works a lot with other writers to put things to music and she said that quite often, that it's it's musical and the rhythm is always musical as well. And I'm mm-hmm. sure it's all connected to yeah, to It's really beautiful, Em. There's a strength there, like you said. You, there you, is. Like yeah. even just for you, the enjoyment, because those who mm. don't recognise that or don't have any sort of synesthesia, and even if they did, they might have a difference. So if they had the taste thing or a smell thing, they might taste or smell it something different, which mm. I think is fascinating. Mm. Interestingly, you've mentioned before about like the seeing things laid out yes. in patterns or in blocks. And that's something that I thought everyone did. And it was like, I don't see colors or taste colors, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't realize that was part of synesthesia, the kind of seeing yeah. things in blocks and patterns. But that's how I see everything when I'm thinking about things in for example, if I'm looking at the structure of a script or the structure of a story and I'm plotting it out, I literally see it in my mind like a set of building blocks, like kids' children's blocks. Yeah, wow. And, that and is, I can, so I can, so I can see where it's unbalanced if there's too many blocks or one of the blocks is bigger at one end. And I didn't, I don't even think it through as much as that. It's just when I'm picturing a story, it's either the right balance or it's not. And I know where I have to shift the blocks and well, that hasn't you, really properly occurred to me. Well, I'll send you some stuff on this. But a book that you might enjoy is by Daniel Tammet called Born on a Blue Day. And he's autistic. I never know how to say savant, savant. I think it's savant, savant. but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Look, we've got all different accents here. <laughs> you know I'm going to get called for something. And he... So he's written this amazing book and he sees numbers in particular in that way. They're all in a certain position out in front of him and to and some are behind him and things like that. Wow. And it's a really fascinating read. I think you'd love it. This sort of stuff, I remember when I first, because I thought everyone had colours associated with, with um, words and letters and syllables, and when I found out that that wasn't stumbled across this on online one night years and years ago, I couldn't wait to wake up my children and, and the next morning and ask them what they thought. And I said, you know, that thing where words have colours and Hannah, my daughter, who's now doing the PhD, said, yeah, like everywhere is red. And I went, yeah, that sort of thing. And then she said, yeah, you know how 
grapes are such a, a strange thing because you know that they're green to look at, but when you taste them, they're pink and pink is just such a smooth colour to touch. And I just thought, well, she's got <laughs> going off at levels. <laughs> and you can see why being able to see things that way would be useful for writing because of the, it's forming unusual connections between things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think expanding. The theory, yeah, the theory with how this happens in the brain is that one of the theories is that we're born, by babies are born like this with everything. There's, there's cross wiring of all the senses all the time, but those get pruned as they develop. And in these cases, there's just a, a gate that doesn't shut. It stays oh. there. So it's a really interesting topic to look up. I participated in a study at the Australian National University a few years ago where they tested our the colours that we associate with certain words and letters and then we came back six months later and redo the test and it was exactly the same, nothing had changed. And it's, it's not just orange, it's burnt orange and, mm-hmm. you know, they're very specific. So then when I had children I had to choose different coloured names that would wow. go together. The level, know. like, so a lot of this feels like stuff that potentially could be going on, right, back, further back in the processors and we just like or don't like things but we don't know why. And maybe that's Mm. part of that pruning. Whereas you are very in touch with the why this makes sense and that one doesn't, or why this isn't quite right because those don't go or to what you were talking about, Rach, like that's too many blocks over here. I can see that actually that gives me potential insight into why certain things that you write resonate so completely. And then all of this Again, to say just quickly on the spelling thing, look, we've got <laughs> a spell check and we've got a grammar check. And it's sort of whilst ghostwriting is a thing, and I can support that, I also would say that if you feel as a writer that you want to get the story out and you will enjoy it, don't let anyone take that joy away from you because you don't remember all. I don't remember the stuff I learned at school, by the way. I still never don't remember it. what this is. I, I missed like, all of those days. All of them. We did, well, we all, our whole generation missed the parts of the sentence and well, still don't know. The what dangling? I would hear things I like, I get that you are talking about a part of grammar, but I don't know what that is. And no. I missed those days. I don't know. Like, I feel like there were, and we had in the US, the dittos like a Xerox sheet. So two things with that. One, I figured out the way to game that system because they would just do these books and then like have a blank. And all you had to do was figure out in the book where that was. And you just, you copy it over. That's not learning. That's just hacking. That was like my (laughs) 1970s, early 80s hacking. But I honestly, for something that I'm so passionate about and that I truly enjoy and why I feel like some of it is very intuitive. But number one, English as a language, probably all the languages, is always changing. Sometimes it can be really annoying. I'll be real with you. But we have a different rule now for where the full stop goes and how many spaces after. We may change whether we hyphenate a word or don't hyphenate a word. Rachel and I were talking about love of M dash or a semicolon. I'm, ta- I'm currently obsessed with M dashes. Yeah. This is one of my so, hyperfixations at the but, moment. But guess what? It's all play. So play Mm. with it. And when you go to publication, if you're really bothered, say you're self-publishing or publishing on Amazon, I still always recommend people get editors 
get an editor who you know this is their thing they like to study they're very mm. analytical and they know all the quote unquote rules by the way there's more than one style book for editing mm. i think a lot of that when we're talking about the rules and and you know mm. grammar and punctuation that's got nothing to do with story I mean, a lot of what we do, it's so instinctual and a sentence will either feel right. And you were talking about musicality before, Anne, and I'm very much about that musicality and and rhythm. And if Mm. a sentence does not have quite the right rhythm, I have to, you know, I mean, and you would know exactly what I'm talking about. It's instinctual and the rest is just technicalities. Well, it's, But I can't write your words the way you would. Mm. Does any of this resonate? Do you experience anything like that? Like some of what Em was talking about, whether it's actual synesthesia or just the recognition about meeting your writing where it is and accepting it? Or have you, I don't know anything about your, whether you're a grammar Nazi or Mm -hmm. super pedantic about spelling or what? The grammar and spelling side, I had no trouble with spelling at school. That came naturally and, of course, that made it easier back then, I suppose, mm. to do what I had to do. But And I don't see the, the colours or the building blocks, but I do feel like my brain is like a, an old, an, like an LP record where because mm. I've written so many Regency historicals, say, where that's one of the genres that I write, and you get the, the groove ha- You know, you've got the structure, the uh, highs and the lows, and therefore the story is like I've got my characters and um, I'm superimposing them. That's the hard bit, or not the hard bit, that's the fun bit because the basis is I've got those grooves of the pacing and the ups and downs in my mind like a record and I put it on top. Story goes on top of the structure that's already imprinted on my I love that. Like, and even if you're changing something. So I saw a really good meme the other day from Catherine Center who writes, I'll just call it women's commercial fiction. I don't know what we call these things anymore. Just enjoyable, really enjoyable books. Um, (laughs) But she said like the difference between tropes and cliches and what you're talking about too, when we talk about a formula and some people, so what she'd said, which I obviously agree with is cliches we want to do away with because it's just saying something like it's so it's by rote. You're not actually explaining anything new. Whereas tropes or like you were talking about the grooves on that record. I love that because that's really satisfying. And that's why we go back to these genres that we like, because we know we're going to get a certain thing in the grooves and yet there's going to be something unique and different about it, different about the characters. So it's not just, oh, I changed their names and what they're wearing and what their job is. Yes, but also there's something that gives us, maybe in this world where we don't control a lot or we don't know what's going on, <laughs> maybe we're going to be diagnosed with something new or you know, we're constantly struggling with, am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? We've got these stories that we can go back to and they give us a sense of not control, but I don't know. It's like almost like a nostalgia. You know, we know Mm. we can depend on it to give us these feelings, but enough that's new. And I'm forgetting the terminology, which I'm doing all the time. And I don't know who to blame for that perimenopause, I'll call it. But there's something that is recognizable and then something that is totally unique. And that's why we go back to them because we love it. 
It's mm. the same reason we want the rom-coms that have these tropes or in like a Regency romance. Your readers continue to be your readers and your raving fans because they recognize it. And by mm. the way, for any writer, whatever your process, when you find those fans, they, and it's not in a, an uncaring way, but they don't mind how you get there. They don't mind if you had to run spell check 80 million times mm. or talk to somebody to figure out where to look in the thesaurus for the word that you're looking for that you can't figure it out. They don't mind. They just want your stories. To to your point, Rach, that's what's important. Yeah. Can I just add another perspective though? Yeah. And this is something that I've been doing a lot of research around just over the last few weeks, specifically after something came up on an Instagram account that I follow. It's a, a content creator that is all about neurodiversity. And, and it was something, we talk about dyslexia a lot and what we were yeah. just talking about, about not being able to find the word or not being sure or the spelling and gram- all of those things. But the flip side of that, and you said just before, Bev, that you didn't have trouble with spelling at school. And when I look back, I have these stories that my mum always told me about when I was very, very young and first in school. And I had have a couple of stories that I still tell about... Um, that up until recently have been an example of, oh, this is how bookish I was when I was little. Yeah. <laughs> and this thing came up on Instagram the other day, the other week, that floored me completely. And I'm still looking into it because I don't know whether it is 100% relevant, but I wasn't even aware that there was such a thing as hyperlexia. Oh. So hyperlexia, especially in autistic children or um, children that are on the spectrum, is very, very early obsession with uh, and affinity for letters and words and and language. So children that read exceptionally early, um, but often, and what I'm what I'm understanding is there's often a bit of a disparity between, yes, they can read at a very advanced level very, very early, but the comprehension of it is not where it should be. So I read very, very early. So I could read really well before I even went to nursery school. So I was, by the end of grade one, my primary school had run out of books for me to read because I had worked my way through every single level. And my mum used to tell that as a story of just how great a reader I was and how smart I was. I remember being seven years old and my uncle and auntie had bought me Watership Down for Christmas and I was seven. And that's a, a YA book. It's 400 pages long. And I sat and read that in two and a half days, just sat under the kitchen table and read that and then read it again to the point where I could speak rabbit by the time I <laughs> reading it. And I always thought this was just me being super smart. But I, I saw this the other day about hyperlexia and I'm not sure if it is relevant because my comprehension levels were really high as well. And there is that thing around comprehension not being where it should be. So I don't know whether it is hyperlexia, but I'm unfortunately, yes, I have been guilty of being a grammar Nazi for a long time. And I have to really try not to be because I do have that understanding and empathy for other people. But I find it's to the point where if if I'm, I get quite agitated if I, if I don't it. have things right and it makes me very stressed and anxious yeah. and I have trouble regulating how I feel about certain things to do with grammar and spelling and punctuation and not because I'm a terrible person and not because I don't have enough. It's just something that triggers in me. And I don't know whether that's related to hyperlexia, whether it's, I'm not sure. I don't know about the hyperlexia. Mm. I will say I've recognized a lot of those things with myself. So in many ways, I've 
gotten much more comfortable with open-endedness and Mm. everything's not in completion and all of that's okay. But like you, I've noticed that what's happening in me is a certain level of anxiety and this lack of control. So Mm. it's not that I'm judging the person, but it's No, no, not at all. And therefore... I feel anxious. There's a there's an internal process. I can't say that this yeah. was hyperlexia, but one of my sons, without calling them out, knew, and I will just say, I didn't know what was normal or within the context of this is within the spectrum of what we would expect at any given stage and knew the alphabet and was putting them all together. It was very clear about it by 18 months. It was very clear only would talk by himself. I could hear him in his cot, in his bedroom alone, but outside was not talking a lot. So if I, if I do have someone on the spectrum, at least one, probably anyway, myself included, I don't know anyway, but he, it was very rigid. There was no Mm. combining things towards. So he wasn't an early reader, but he was very Mm -hmm. specific about what order the letters, you know, those big foam letters, what order they had to go, where the shapes had to have an order Mm. and all the things had to be a specific way. And that, and that was it, but it didn't flow into the other things. And to your point, a recognition of what something is, or maybe even enjoyment of it, that would be interesting. I mean, I always love these kinds of combos. Is it hyperlexia? I don't know, because it did seem that you were at least comprehending some of it. Whereas I would say even my daughter could read words and tell me what the words were. But if we had a long conversation about what was the story about, Mm. it probably didn't have the nuance that you might expect Mm. for how quickly she read it or at what level she read. So there's, again, everything's... It's also also fascinating. It's it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you were going to say something before, Em? Yes. (laughs) I was just going to say something that's just occurred to me is that I practically kill myself getting things done well. So you may have noticed those who have been suffering through my Facebook posts for the last year or so (laughs) when I've been getting this book done. And, I mean, it's just been, now I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, and then when I deliver the book, the comment from the editor was this is a very clean draft with almost nothing that needs to be done. Mm. And when I think about the difficulty it is to spell simple (laughs) simple words along the way I'm just going to say that I'm proud of myself now absolutely for for having I mean I just worked ridiculously hard on that book but to be able to get it to a point where you do give it to an editor and they they wouldn't have any idea the amount of work Mm. that went into Mm. it I don't think until you said I would never in a million years have guessed you have any issues even momentary with spelling Blew my mind. Blew my mind. Yeah. So Mm. obviously what we're experiencing and then what we feel proud of, I guess what I would wish for you is less angst in the making of it, getting the story out, feeling Mm. like Bev was talking about, I'm going to be loving that for ages now, thinking about old vinyl records with the grooves and stuff, but enjoying more of that before worrying about, is it as long as you potentially could go back and know what word you meant? Great. Mm. That's all you need just to enjoy that initial relevatory and that magical process of telling yourself the story first without worrying about putting in so much efforting at the beginning. And I know some of it Mm. comes from your experience as a copywriter 
and freelance writer, you don't have the same turnaround. You know, I mean, you've got a tighter turnaround time, but writing long form is different. And so giving yourself that opportunity, when we talk about structures or patterns, finding a way to give yourself those external indicators. I can take my time with this. I can spend more time thinking about the colors rather than worrying about it spelled correctly so that you can just enjoy it. Because long form is tough for anyone, right? So enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, go do something until you can sit down and enjoy it. And maybe doing all of those things until you create the pressure cooker so that you come down and get it all out sort of all all in one go. I feel like this is a conversation. Maybe we'll all have to go away and, and do some more research and bring some more things because we don't want it to go too long. But what a fascinating conversation with each of you and the different perspectives and the different things that you've brought to it. What's most heartening is that you each seem to have gotten to a place where you can find things that you've shifted your perspective, taking it from a defect to a strength or a superpower, or even just saying, "Eh, I don't love it, but that's how it is. And I'm still getting Mm. done what I want to get done. I'm still getting the stories out. I think it's that acceptance of yourself rather than struggling to try to fit yourself into some kind of box that other people tell you you should fit into. And that's so exhausting. And I think all of us have probably done that for so long, you know, at some point in our life, it's actually quite liberating to think, okay, no, I don't have to fit inside this box. I don't have to twist myself into knots anymore. So, yeah. yeah. And maybe some of it is is age, but I do hope that we bring this sort of attitude to, to our kids. I mean, mm. all of us here have children and or grandchildren too, that we can start to say, what are the things that I'm sharing with them to change the way that we give that positive feedback rather than saying, just do it or like color inside the lines, you know, mm. I get it. But guess what? Just have, some, just have some fun first. I guess all of this to say, like I said at the start, the ultimate message is if you want to write, if you want to write your stories, you're the person to write the stories. Any other thing that you accept as part of yourself is just something extra that you're bringing to the table. And in fact, maybe like the writer's have been talking about today, you will find that actually they're your superpower. They're this unique thing that you're bringing to it, this unique insight. And if we didn't share, like we wouldn't know that Emma's one of the people who sees the world in extra, extra colors or blocks that are being built up like different Lego. Like I'm just thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have so much fun thinking about all of the different ways that you guys create and all of those different examples. I'm very visual. Can you tell? I'm going to be thinking about them. Until next time, thank you all so much for coming on and talking with me today. You're welcome. A pleasure as always. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.